Before we start, let me just say thanks to our band. These guys do a fantastic job leading us in worship. And they don't do it for us to clap for them, I assure you, uh, but I want them to know that we appreciate them. And uh, this morning in rehearsal, we were all here early and we had uh, technical difficulties galore. And the spirit in the group was good. Nobody uh, was sour, nobody griped, nobody complained. We figured it out and pieced it together. And uh, I appreciate them and their attitude and their spirit of service. Take your Bible out, find the Gospel of Luke. And you can also take your uh, bulletin out. There should be an insert in your bulletin if you like to follow along there. Our passage is Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. The theme verse for the Gospel of Luke we have mentioned every week so far, and I intend on mentioning it every Sunday that we study the Gospel of Luke, is Luke 19.10. And in case you have trouble remembering Luke 19.10, there it is. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That one big idea governs everything that you see in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see that that's true this morning. On the top of your outline, uh, there is what we call the big idea of the passage, and I'm going to give that to you before we jump in this morning. The big idea of these verses is this. God is calling people to believe what he has done through Jesus and to celebrate what he has done through Jesus. We talk a lot about believing. Do you trust? Do you have faith? Do you believe in Jesus? And that's part of what we see this morning. God is calling us. He wants us to believe what he has done through Jesus, but he also wants us to celebrate what he has done through Jesus. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, it's a story of Mary, who is pregnant, visiting her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. And when the two ladies get together, uh, Elizabeth has a few things to say to Mary, and Mary has a song that she's going to sing, and the song that Mary sings is the first of four songs in the first part of the Gospel of Luke, and these are on uh, your outline. I believe I listed them out. There's four of them. The first one is, is Mary. She sings a song called The Magnificat. Zechariah sings a song called The Benedictus. The angels sing The Gloria, and Simeon sings the nunc dimittis, and those are Latin words. They come from the first word in each of those songs in the Latin translation of the New Testament. So when you read through Latin and you get to Mary's song, the first word is magnificent. Uh, Zechariah, the first word is benedictus. The angels, the first word is gloria. And Simeon, the first word is nunc dimittis. And these songs have been sung. They've been part of Christian worship from the time that they were written. They have been sung in cathedrals. They have been chanted by monks in monasteries. They have been put to uh, what we call classical music, to uh, sort of symphonic music by people like Bach, and they've been put to popular contemporary Christian music by people like Chris Tomlin. And so whatever your musical taste, you can find somebody who has taken one of these songs and many of these songs and adapted them to a style of Christian worship. Our goal this morning is really simple. We're going to read the story about Mary and Elizabeth meeting and read Mary's song. We're going to try to learn uh, what does it look like to believe and to celebrate what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, and then we are going to do that. We're going to respond, believing the truth about Jesus and celebrating the truth about Jesus. So you follow along as I read our text, Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 39, and we'll read all the way to verse 56. So this is the word of God. 
In those days, Mary arose, and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, or you could literally say Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. In the rich he has sent away, he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then she returned to her home. Let's pray. Father, we do welcome your spirit into our gathering this morning. And Father, just as your spirit inspired the words that we just read, we pray that your spirit would illuminate them and make them clear to us that we would understand what you're calling us to, to believe the truth about your son and to celebrate the truth about your son. Father, give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us hearts to respond to you even this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think about celebrations and the word celebrate. In our culture, in the United States of America, think for a minute about some of the things that we celebrate. We celebrate, for one thing, life milestones. And so I came up with a a list of life milestones. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate graduations. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate babies. We celebrate anniversaries. And you think about the celebrations for all of those things and and what you've experienced and what they look like. We get together with a group of people uh, and there's usually laughter and joy and joking and and, uh, pleasant emotions. And usually there's food. Food is always a good way to celebrate. So we get together, we have something to eat. Maybe there's some sort of music. If you're not having this celebration at the Baptist Fellowship Hall, maybe you even have dancing. But you do a lot of fun things and you celebrate all of these good life milestones. Another thing we celebrate is holidays. And uh, we celebrate New Year's. We celebrate Valentine's Day. We celebrated just recently the 4th of July. We celebrate Halloween or Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. And again, you know how these celebrations usually look. We get together with maybe friends or family. There's usually a lot of food involved. Sometimes there's gift giving involved. Sometimes there's music. But you know what it looks like to celebrate, whether it's a a life event, whether that's a holiday. But maybe the best example of celebration in the United States that I could come up with is sports. We celebrate sports in the United States of America. And let's be honest. Sports is the one area in our culture where it is really socially acceptable to celebrate with no restraint. 
lots of things we celebrate, but we sort of put up a wall and we sort of try to act somewhat reserved and dignified. But when it comes to sports, we lose all of that. And so I'll give you a few examples. When we lived in Kingfisher, there was a man in our church who owned a bank. And uh, through his bank, he bought season tickets to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And they were really great seats, about eight rows up right behind the Thunder bench. And so when somebody not appealing to him was in town, every now and then we got to go to the Thunder game. And we got to sit right there, eight rows back behind the bench. And the seats are awesome. They're one row above the camera view. So if you watch on TV, if you were ever looking for me on TV, I was one row up above where the camera shows. But there we were, and you can see perfectly from those seats this man. He's known as the Thunder Superfan. And he sits in the end zone down by the Thunder bench. In every game, that's him. He's got his megaphone, and he's got some type of body paint. He was feeling patriotic today, so he, he did a little flag on it. He did a big flag on his belly. And uh, he's got a cape on, and he's got his wrestling mask, and he's got his megaphone. And usually he wears suspenders with this outfit. No shirt, but suspenders. And he'll come down when the opposing team is shooting free throws, and he'll dance around and yell and holler in his megaphone. And I just ask you, where else in our society and culture is this acceptable? <laughs> Nowhere. You can't do this at work. You can't do it on Sunday morning. You can wear a lot of things to church at Emmanuel. You cannot wear this. You cannot come in with your athletic shorts and suspenders and your belly painted. It's not acceptable. But you go to a sporting event and you say, this guy's awesome. This guy is the greatest. There he is. He's half naked. He's got suspenders and body paint and a mask and a megaphone. This guy is the Thunder super fan. Here's another example. It's not just basketball. It's also football. I will regretfully admit to you I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, and there's not a lot to be a fan about, but I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. And so that means two times every season, Dallas Cowboy fans have to see that, the pig pen, Washington Redskins. What the pigs have to do with the Redskins, I have no idea, but these guys come and they wear their dresses and they wear their fancy hats, and they wear their frilly gloves, and they put on a pig snout. I don't know where that came from. There's probably a story behind it, but they put on a pig snout, and there they are, the pig pen, cheering for the game. And again, I say to you, this is not socially acceptable. For men to walk around in most cities, this is not socially acceptable. For men to walk around with dresses and wigs and pig snouts, and yet we watch them at a football game, and we say, those guys are great. They know how to cheer on their fans. The pig pen, we need to put them right there on the front row, make sure the camera shows them on TV all throughout the game. We celebrate sports and we do it without reservation. We know how to do that. And you're sitting there and you're saying, well, they do. I don't go to Thunder basketball games with shorts and a suspender and a cape and a mask. And I don't go to football games wearing a dress and a pig snout. I don't do that sort of thing. But listen, we know how to celebrate when it comes to sports. Here's another example of celebration. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to the OU-OSU Bedlam football game. So this is Oklahoma Sooners versus Oklahoma State Cowboys, in-state rivalry. The game was at Oklahoma State in Stillwater. And the year that I went is a couple years back, 
OU was heavily, heavily favored to win. It was towards the end of the season, and OU was making a nice run through conference play. Everyone just thought OU was going to demolish the Cowboys. This is the end of the game, and you can tell by the crowd rushing the field that Oklahoma State absolutely dominated the football game. From beginning, opening kickoff to the end, it was, I'm sorry, Corey, it was a beatdown. Oklahoma State just trashed them. And I'm telling you that during that football game, I really could care less about either of these teams, but during that football game in Stillwater with all of these OSU fans, there was some serious celebration. And it didn't look like this. That was a really nice play. I mean, it was enthusiastic. Hands were in the air, high-fiving, chest-bumping, screaming, yelling at their top of the lungs, crying tears of joy. They were so excited. The final whistle blew. They filled the, the, the field, rushing out of the stands. They ripped both of the goalposts down, uh, carried them sort of in circles around the bottom of the stadium for about 40 minutes. We just stayed and watched. I was not in on that. But watch them in all of this wild celebration. And again, you say to me, Okay, that's a bunch of college kids. Half of them were probably drunk. They were excited. I don't dress up crazy for football or basketball. I don't rush the field after sporting events. Some people do that, yes, but I don't know how to do that. And if that's you still in denial, I would just say the next time your kids or grandkids or great-grandkids play soccer, will you invite me to the game? And whether you realize it or not, you look a lot more like that than you know. We know how to celebrate when it comes to sports. Now listen to me. In Luke 1, we see a picture of Elizabeth and Mary, and they're talking and they're singing about what God is doing through them for the sake of the world. And what you see is people who, yes, believe the truth. We get that. It's sort of a, a head and a heart thing, and we, we know what it means to believe. But they also celebrate what God is doing in them and through them and for them. God is calling people to believe what he has done through Jesus and to celebrate what he has done through Jesus. Which leads me to this question. We're going to break down the passage like this. In our lives, what does faith-filled celebratory worship look like? If we're going to do this, if we're going to respond to what God is calling us to do, what does this kind of worship, filled with faith, and celebratory in nature, what does it look like? Seven ideas, and some of them we will talk about very quickly. Some we'll talk about a little more in depth. Number one, faith-filled celebratory worship is spiritual in origin. And that is not a typo. The S in spiritual is supposed to be capital. So I'm not just saying it's sort of a, a mushy-gushy feeling spiritual thing. I'm saying that this kind of worship comes from, capital S, the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual in nature. This is how it's always been. You can look back into the Old Testament. Before Jesus came, you can read Jeremiah 31. And God said, look, in the New Covenant, when Jesus comes, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to send my Spirit to do a work in their life. And once my spirit, capital S, comes and does a work in their life, they're going to know me, all of them, from the least to the greatest. They're going to know me, and they're going to love me, and they're going to keep my commandments. But it begins with the work that I'm going to do in their life. You can flip over to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, 
where the prophet says, look, the days are coming where I will pour out my spirit on these people. I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and I will move them to love me and to obey me and to know me. First, I do a work in their life, and then they're going to respond. And that's exactly what you see in this passage. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Talked about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit, capital S, from conception. And we understand in the verses we just read that when Mary, i.e. Jesus, in her womb, comes into his presence, he's jumping around in Elizabeth's womb. That's not like bad tacos the night before. That's the Holy Spirit inspiring John to respond. We read about Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, and it says that she was filled with the Spirit. And then she speaks, verse 42, 43, 44, 45, all of her words inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Even Mary Look what Mary says, because her song is a response to God's work in her life. She begins in verse 47, and she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God has saved me. I'm not a sinless person. I'm not a righteous person. I'm not a good person. I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and God has saved me. He's done a work in my life. He's opened my heart so that I could believe the truth about him. He's changed me. He's taken out my heart of stone and given me a heart of flesh, and here's my response. I'm going to sing in worship to God. Understand that Mary is not held up as an object for your faith, but as a model for faith. And the only thing that Mary is commended for, the only thing she gets a thumbs up or a pat on the back for is that she believes God. Elizabeth says this in verse 45, blessed is she, Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She was a sinner who believed and trusted in the saving promises of God because God had done a work in her life, a spiritual work, capital S spiritual and her response was faith-filled celebratory worship. Number two, faith-filled celebratory worship is God-centered in focus, meaning it's not about us and the benefits that we get from God, but it's about God and who he is and what he's done. There's a very subtle difference. Sometimes you go to churches today and you hear them singing the latest song that you hear on K-Love or Air One or whatever, and maybe it's a really great song, and maybe it's a true song, but maybe it's a song that's about us and not about God. And true worship, faith-filled worship, celebratory worship is not focused on us, but it's focused on God. Look at verse 43. Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my what? Lord. The mother of my Lord. That same word, Lord, is used 23 times in these opening chapters to refer to who? God. Clearly to God. And she says now, Mary, you are the mother of my Lord. Elizabeth's going to use that word in verse 45 to refer clearly to God. Her focus is on God. What about Mary's focus? You can read the Magnificent from beginning to end. Never does she sing about or dwell on the fact that she's excited to have a baby that something really great and exciting and wonderful is about to come into her life. Her focus from beginning to end is on God. 
She's not focused on the blessing, but she's focused on the one who gives the blessing. Look at verse 47. God is her Savior. Verse 48 and 49, God is great and God is holy. Verse 50, he's merciful. 51, 2, 3, he's powerful. Verse 54 and 55, he's faithful. From beginning to end, the worship in this passage is completely focused on God. Leads us to number three. Faith-filled celebratory worship is biblical in content. It is biblical in content. That doesn't mean you have to just sing the Bible verbatim, but it means that God's word is the foundation that forms the content of our worship. Maybe it's just me, but as I read this story this week and I looked ahead and I looked at Zechariah and then I looked at, uh, uh, at Simeon later, it struck me as odd that all of these people just burst out into song. Jesus comes into their presence, and they just immediately start singing these songs. And I thought to myself, you know, I've celebrated a lot of sports. I've celebrated a lot of holidays, birthdays. I have never just broken into song out of nowhere. Maybe I'm just not musical enough. I don't know if our band members go around doing this at celebrations. Tyler says, no, he's never done that. I've never just broken out in song. Here's what I think is happening in Mary's life. I think she's had time to ponder these things and to think about these things. And it kind of reminds me of uh, the newest version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Any of you seen that movie, the one with Johnny Depp? The old one with Gene Wilder I like better. And the book is even better than both the movies. But in the newest movie, if you've seen it, you know, the kids come to the Chocolate Factory and they walk around with Charlie and they see all these things. And one by one, they get in trouble and they sort of get shaved off the scene and and taken out of the story. And in the book and in the original movie... Every time a kid gets cut, the Oompa Loompas come immediately onto the sing and they start singing. And all the songs they sing are about these kids that just got booted out of the factory. And so in the newest movie, that happens. They come and Augustus gets sucked up the chocolate thing and there he goes and the Oompa Loompas come and they sing about Augustus getting sucked up the thing. And one of the kids looks at the Oompa Loompas and says, have you been practicing that? How did you know that was going to happen? Did you know he was going to get sucked? How did you make that song up? And every kid that gets hived off, they say, how are you singing these songs? You're just making them up on the spur of moment. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek humor that this is a musical, and they're singing these songs on the spur of the moment. And at first glance, that's what it looks like Mary is doing. But she's just taken a journey from her home to see Elizabeth. And I looked up a bunch of different sources, and I found lots of different answers. This journey was anywhere from 50 to 150 miles. No one knows exactly for certain where Elizabeth and Zechariah live. So she's gone a long ways. And she didn't have a bus. She didn't have a taxi. She didn't have a car. She probably walked. Maybe if she was fortunate enough, she got to ride a a donkey or a colt or something like that. But more than likely, she walked on this long journey to see Elizabeth. And as she walked, she thought. She thought about all the things Gabriel had just said to her. Things that she believed, but she was trying to wrap her mind around. And she thought about the Bible, the Old Testament. And she thought about God's promises in Isaiah. A virgin will conceive, and you will call him Emmanuel, and uh, he will be the Son of God. The government will be on her shoulders. She's pondering all of these things. She's trying to put all of these pieces together thinking about what Gabriel said, thinking about what the Bible says. And she comes into Elizabeth's presence, and immediately she just overflows in worship. 
Listen to me. The song that Mary sings has 12 different Old Testament quotations or allusions. That's all she sings. She's not making this song up. She's just singing Bible verses that she knows from the Old Testament that she understands are being fulfilled in what God is doing in her life. This worship that is filled with faith and celebrate, celebratory in nature is biblical in its basis. Parents, grandparents, would you like your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids to grow up and be pe people who worship God? with faith and with celebration and with joy and exuberance. All of us, I think, would want that. If you want that, stop worrying about hymns or contemporary music. Stop worrying about drums or organs. Stop worrying about lights or displays or all of these other things. Stop worrying about whether or not they close their eyes when they sing, if they raise their hands with their sing. All of those things are fine and okay and good, but they're peripheral. Worry about God's Word. Teach your kids and your grandkids God's Word so that when they come to crucial moments in their life, their heart overflows with the truth of Scripture in worship. So faith-filled worship, celebratory worship is biblical in content. Number four, this kind of worship is internal in nature. Internal in nature. Mary did sing a song. She sang it out loud. But verse 46 and verse 47, she's, she's talking about her soul, excuse me, or her spirit magnifying God. She's worshiping from her heart. Anybody can sing a song. And it's good to sing a song. And in a few minutes, we're going to sing, and I hope you'll sing with us. But true worship stems, and it springs from the heart. It's internal in nature. Number five, faith-filled celebratory worship is passionate in expression. It's passionate in expression. And this one probably rubs us a little bit. The Latin word is magnificat. That's where the title or the... Uh, traditional name of Mary's song comes from. The Greek word is megaluno. Megaluno. It means to make large, to magnify, to glorify, to praise, to extol. And wrapped up in that definition is the idea of passion. This is not something you do casually. This is not something you do half-heartedly. When Mary begins her song with this word megaluno, magnificent, she's not saying, I'm going to sort of run through this song I've been working on. She's saying, I can't keep this song inside of me. It is overflowing, and I'm passionate about what I'm talking about. I'm passionate about what I'm singing about. This kind of worship is passionate. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but let's just admit it. We know how to be passionate when it comes to sports. How many of you have watched any of the World Cup? There's a game on this afternoon, and I'm just telling you, if you turn it on, you're going to see passion. I should have got a picture. I didn't get a picture this week, but you could get on the Internet and you can find it. When Brazil got trounced by Germany, 7-1, to one, you should have seen the Brazilian fans in the crowd, in the stands. It was passion. It was people who were totally crushed and devastated. Children, women, men, all of the above, weeping in the stands as their team got beat. Why? Because they're passionate about their team. True worship is passionate. Those of us who recently went to Kenya, those of you who have been overseas, have seen this. We're uh, able to worship with a group of people, Kenyan people, 
And they don't worship like we do. They worship the same God we worship. They sing songs that we can agree with uh, when it comes to the lyrics and the words. And we tried our best to clap along and stay in beat. And Chris Ray wasn't very good at that, but he made a good effort at it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin where he's trying to keep rhythm with his African-American family, but that's what Chris Ray looked like. But hey, we made an effort at it. And what I'm telling you is these people worship with passion. Now, time out, and I'll back up, and I'll just say this. I am not going to be the guy who goes on a mission trip and comes back and rebukes you for not being Kenyans. You're not Kenyans. And I'm not asking you to worship like Kenyans. I'm not asking you to imitate them or try to be exactly like them. Listen, God is sovereign. The Bible says he puts people where he wants them, on the places of this earth where he wants them to be. If God wanted you to be a Kenyan, he could have put you in Kenya. He put you here in the United States. I'm not upholding Kenyans as perfect worshipers because they are not. They have sins and shortcomings just like we do. But here's one thing we can learn from them, and it's passion, enthusiasm. Again, you may step back and say, well, preacher, that's just their culture. That's not our culture. And all I would say to you, speaking to myself first and you second, is on Friday nights in West Texas when the lights come on, passion is our culture. And Saturday afternoon when it's time to tailgate with your favorite sports team at the stadium, passion is our culture. And Sunday afternoon when I'm talking a little bit too long and you know the Cowboys are about to come on TV and you're doing the math thinking, can we, can we make it to Jason's and get home for kickoff? I don't know if we can. Passion is our culture. We know how to be passionate. We just sometimes struggle with being passionate about the right things. I'm not telling you to be wild and crazy, to do jumping jacks, to scream around, to act like an idiot. I'm just saying whatever passion looks like in your life, it needs to come out in your worship. Faith-filled, celebratory worship is passionate in expression. Number six, faith-filled celebratory worship is regular in occurrence. It's regular in occurrence. It's not just something you do when you go to Kenya. It's not just something you do when you go to youth camp. It's not just something you do during VBS, but it's a part of your life. Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says this, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is not a one-time event where she breaks out in worship. This is part of the overall pattern of her life. Luke chapter 2 verse 41 tells us that Mary and Joseph were faithful and consistent in going to Jerusalem every year to worship with their family. If they made that kind of sacrifice, it wasn't just something they did once a year, but it was part of their entire life. It was part of the fabric of who they are. The glimpses of worship you see in Luke 1 are part of the overall movie of these people's lives. They worshiped regularly, consistently, habitually. Lastly, number seven. We'll end with this. Faith-filled, celebratory worship is humble in attitude. It's humble in attitude. Last couple weeks, we've talked about the idea that God delights in using nobodies for his glory. He delights in using nobodies for his glory. Understand that that is Mary. Mary was a nobody from nowhere, and she knew it. 
She was fully aware of who she was in her insignificance and in her sinfulness. She knew all of these things without question. You didn't have to convince her, and yet she was used by God for his glory in an amazing way. I found a, a quote this week from John Lennon, who was part of the Beatles, and I thought it was an interesting quote. He says, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. That's an interesting statement. And the first thing I think when I hear that statement is to say that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, Emmanuel, God with us, is all right, is blasphemy. Second thing I think is that when he says the disciples were thick and ordinary, I, I think, duh, we all are. So are you, John. We're all thick, we're all ordinary, we're all dull, we're all dense, we're all slow to get it. God delights in using people who know that they're thick and they're ordinary and they don't have anything great to bring before God. And the last thing ties into that and flows out of that is that God delights in using nobodies for his glory. And he used these nobodies, and they were nobodies, they were sinners. They had hang-ups and shortcomings just like you and just like me. God used them in an amazing way for his glory. He wants to do the same with you. But it requires humility. Humility doesn't necessarily mean you just try to make yourself feel like a worm of a, of a creature. Humility means you understand that you're a nobody from nowhere and you're fine with that. It means you understand that you are a sinner in the presence of a holy God, that you don't have any good thing to bring before Him, nothing meritorious or, or good in your life to offer Him. It means confessing your sin before Him. It means believing what Jesus has done for you, not trying to add to it with your own goodness, but believing that the Son of Man really did come to seek and to save the lost, and He's found you, and He saved you at the cross. And... Not only knowing who you are, not only confessing your sin, not only believing the truth about Jesus, but true humility means that you celebrate what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We wanted to read this passage, we wanted to understand it, and then we wanted to respond in a way that would honor Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask you to bow, and we're going to pray together. And Father, our prayer this morning is simple. We're grateful for the Bible. We believe that it's true. We're grateful for what you have done in sending Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And Father, we see these two ladies who believed what you have done through Jesus and who celebrated what you have done through Jesus. And Father, we want to join them we want to join Zechariah and the angels and Simeon and Mary and Elizabeth. And Father, we want to come before you with hearts filled with faith. We want to come before you and celebrate who you are and what you've done on our behalf. We want to come humbly. We want to come passionately. Father, we want your spirit to work in us so that we can come.
and we can worship. Father, be honored as we sing. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.